Well, I, uh, I turned 40 last week. And 40 is supposed to be, when I grew up, 40 was the over-the-hill birthday party. Uh, because I guess, um, I don't know if it's still considered that, maybe people live longer now, I think, but it was kind of like the midway point of life. And so people asked me, what did you do on your 40th birthday? And I told them I contemplated my mortality, uh, which is somewhat true. Uh, so I contemplated my mortality. I actually got more emotional uh, at Pam's 40th birthday than my 40th birthday. I was crying like a baby, like all the whole time. And it was back in May, she turned 40, and the song, there was a song that was playing in my head from one of my favorite musicians named Jason Isbell, and it's a song called If We Were Vampires. The, the chorus of the song goes like this. It says, um, knowing that this can't go on forever, knowing that this can't go on forever, um, it's likely, I know I should write this down because of course right now I can't remember it. Uh, knowing that this can't go on forever, um, likely one of us will have to spend some time alone. Maybe we'll go 40 years together, but one day you'll be gone or one day I'll be gone. It's knowing that this can't go on forever Likely one of us will have to spend some time alone. Maybe we'll get 40 years together, but one day you'll be gone or one day I'll be gone. Man, those lyrics slay me. And I was like crying like a baby because you see, this year, Pam and I also celebrated our 15 year wedding anniversary. Our 15 year wedding anniversary. And I realize that for some of you, that is small potatoes, that is child's play, but for me, it feels substantial. How much more substantial some of your marriages that have gone 25, 35, 45, 50 plus years? And yet, and yet, they end. So what was striking about those lyrics is he doesn't say it's knowing that you and I, or that we won't go on forever, it's knowing that this I think what got me so emotional during that time was not contemplating my own mortality. It's not that I'm going to die or that Pam's going to die, because the reality is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has rendered my death temporary and hers as well. But it's that this thing we call marriage, that's not going to go on. How can something so substantial, so weighty, so foundational to life and society as we know it, how can it just end? And what implications does that have for how we live in this world? That's the question that Paul is taking up in, first, in answering in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now I have to tell you, if you know anything about me, you know, I am a lover of the Apostle Paul. Uh, as much as I don't want to have a canon within the canon, I just love Paul. Uh, and yet, Paul says some things that are very difficult for me to stomach. And one of those things is what he says here. 
And I imagine it's going to be tough for some of you as well. So let me pray for us. God, your word is truth. May we hear the truth and live as your free people. For Christ came to set us free indeed. Amen. Verses 26 through 28, Paul writes, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman or a virgin marry, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, sufferings of the flesh. And I would spare you that. It's not that marriage is sin. Paul says very clearly, you have not sinned, verse 28, if you get married. And yet, Paul also says that marriage is not an unqualified good. It's not something that should be an unqualified goal, even. He says, I would have you remain as you are. He says, I would spare you the worldly troubles or the sufferings of the flesh that comes with being married. Now, how are we to understand this? Well, some people have tried to get around what Paul is saying. And the way that they've tried to get around, because it doesn't hit them very well, just like it doesn't hit me very well, and they've tried to get around and saying, well, Paul is talking about a specific situation that the Corinthians are facing. And this really only applies to the Corinthians and not to us. Pretty convenient. The problem with that is that we don't see any historical evidence for the specific situation that he's talking about. That's the first thing. The second thing is that though this is written to the Corinthians, it is written for us. And the third thing, actually the most important thing, is Paul actually tells us that that's not what he's talking about. Because he goes on, look, in verse 29 he says, this is what I mean, brothers. Paul is about to tell us what he means. So we don't have to wonder. This is what I mean. The appointed time has grown very short. The time has been contracted. Time has folded in on itself. Paul says, when Paul says that the appointed time has grown very short, or time has been contracted, or time has folded in on itself, he's not talking about some specific situation that's happening in Corinth, but the universal situation that's happened because of the advent of Jesus Christ. Paul believes that we live in a very special time. It's the time that awaits the coming day of the Lord. When Jesus will come and with the saints judge even the angels in the world. When the world will be set right. When Jesus will show his reign of peace and it will be full and it will be final. But Paul also believes that the decisive events that actually bring that world into, into existence have already occurred with the first coming of Jesus Christ. With his first advent. And right now we live as it were mid-advent. And it's a very special time. It's a time in which, it's a time in which time has been contracted. It's a time in which the present form of this world, verse 31, is passing away. 
A time in which he will say in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that a new creation has come into being. So Paul believes that this, this idea that the old creation is fading away and a new creation has been brought about by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is what he is talking about. He is not talking about emergency measures in Corinth, as I was, I was taught to believe growing up. He's talking about a measured evaluation of reality in light of Jesus' advent. See, he believes that the coming of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and his ascension and his reign have brought tectonic shifts in the universe. And that we are in the midst of this great change the world is being shaken up and it's resettling. And what the world is now is not what it will be. Things are passing away, an old order of things. Not the old world, he says, no. The old form of the world. The old structure of the world. The old arrangement of the world. It is passing away and a new arrangement is coming into being. And in light of that, from now on, verse 29, from now on, because Jesus Christ has come, and it's promised to come again, we can't go on business as usual. We simply can't. Think of it like this. Some of you can relate to this. I'll give you an analogy. Some of you are healthcare workers. And there have been tectonic shifts in the healthcare industry, especially in the last 10 years. One of them is the move from, uh, from having all your records on paper to moving all your patient records and all patient records to digital. And as I've talked to doctors, it's so funny for like, I, I thought like a five year period, I would sit in a doctor's office and every one of them was bringing up the fact that they were transferring their records from paper to digital. Because it was like a tectonic shift and from that re for that reason, because records are going that way, it was no longer business as usual. There had to be adjustments that were made to the electronic uh, records. Well, Paul believes that this tectonic shift has happened in the world. An old creation is fading away. A new creation is coming into being. And so it can no longer be business as usual. From now on, verse 29, he says, let those who have wives live, live as though they have none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as if they have no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now, what is Paul saying? Is he saying that we should, we should get divorces, leave our spouses, give up on our families? No, he's not saying that. And that's really clear from earlier in the chapter. In verses 10 and 11 of this chapter, he makes it very clear that we are to fulfill our marital obligations, those of us who are married. So he's not saying that we are to, to leave our spouses. He's not saying that we aren't to, or, or even to practically live as if we're not married. Nor is he saying that we're to do some kind of halfway thing, like halfway get married. Because you can't halfway get married. And you can't halfway buy. You either purchase something or you don't. You don't halfway do it. So what is he talking about? What Paul's presenting here is a paradox. You know what a paradox is? A paradox is two statements that on the surface seem to be false, but when investigated further, show that they are actually complementary and true. 
And here he says that in life in mid-Advent, Christians live in this paradox. On the one hand, we marry and mourn and rejoice and trade and deal with the world. On the other hand, we live as though we are not married or mourning, not rejoicing, and as though we have no goods and no dealings with the world. See, Paul assumes that these actions are going to go on. They're going to continue, but they're going to continue in an unusual and in a paradoxical mode. What does that look like? Well, here, here, here's the best way I can say it. I'm going to give you two, two postures that I think this Paul's calling for to live life mid-Advent. And the first is he's calling for what I would call an Advent detachment. Notice he says that we buy things, verse 29, but not to own things. But that's the whole reason that you buy things. Like if you buy something, you buy it so that you can purchase it so it can be yours permanently, so you can own it. He says, but there's this paradoxical thing. Well, Christians buy things. They don't buy them so as to own them. It reminds me of this friend that I had in, uh, when I was in seminary. He was in St. Louis at the time. We were very close. And he had moved around a lot. He had gone from college to Wake Forest, North Carolina to law school. After law school, he moved to St. Louis to clerk for a federal, federal judge. Uh, he was clerking for a federal judge for two years. During that time, he had to move like several times. He was always moving. And so one time I go into his apartment and, and I look and he's got like this one chair. He has this box fan. I mean, he has very like few things. And, uh, and he had this philosophy. This is what he said. He said, if I can't fit it into my Jeep, Jeep Grand Cherokee, it's gone. See, my friend Mackie, he lived in a way that he knew that he was always moving, that he was always going to be moving, that he was living in an impermanent permanent state. And because of that, he didn't settle down too much. He didn't get too attached to, to the things that were in his apartment because he knew that that apartment wasn't going to be there long. It's not that he didn't care. He cared for me. He cared for his work. He cared for a lot of things, but he cared in a way that knew that life was in flux. Paul is calling us to not put the same investment in, in attachment in the current order of the world. He's not calling us to stop caring, but we care with the knowledge that things are in flux and that the normal, practical, financial, and emotional test, uh, attachments that we would have normally are chastened because of this. See, because he knows that that we should not put the same amount of stock in things that are passing away. And one of the most difficult things about what Paul says here is that he lists marriage as one of the things that's passing away. I wonder how that sits with you. I'm not going to lie. It doesn't sit very well with me. It doesn't sit very well with me. I mean, consider what marriage is. Marriage was actually there at the apex of creation as a good because it was not good for man to be alone. Marriage is there as a foundational uh, institution of society to fulfill the cultural mandate to be fruitful and to multiply. It's actually like intrinsic to what it means to be human from the very beginning. And marriage is also... <laughs> Marriage is also a, a picture image of Christ in the church. 
Like it's one of the most beautiful pictures of what points to Christ in the church. This mystery is profound, Paul says, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church. And, and not only that, uh, think about the importance of, of families and the way that God's covenant is dealt and goes forward. I mean, it's huge. God tells Abraham not just to put the sign of the covenant on himself, but also on his kids. And, and he knew that marriage actually is for to promote a godly offspring. I mean, this is huge in the history of redemption. This is huge in creation. And yet Paul says passing away and it's not just marriage if marriage does it something that foundational what about the rest of it he gets broader when he says dealings with this world I don't know about you but that doesn't sit well with me and maybe it doesn't sit well with me because I've become too comfortable in my seat. A seat which is quickly vanishing and fading away. When I was growing up, I somehow caught this uh, aphorism to sit loose. Have you heard this aphorism? I said it once to someone, I was talking to a colleague at Westmont, Sandy Richter, and I talked about sitting loose, and she goes, that must be a Southern thing, I've never heard that before. So then I started asking Southerners, and they were like, no, we've never heard that before. So I don't know where I got this, but to sit loose is like the opposite of sitting tight. It, it, it means that you, you don't hold still, you, you sit lightly. I actually looked it up, I was like, where does this come from? And, and, um, and Robert Lewis, it's short for sitting loose in the saddle. Robert Lewis Stevenson said, sit loosely in the saddle of life. You know, if you're riding a horse or riding a motorcycle and you come across shifty ground, ground that's unsteady, it, you don't like bear down comfortably in the saddle. You don't put all your weight down there. You actually sit up a bit, right? You don't put all your weight down. You're sitting light in the saddle. You're sitting loose. And, and Paul says, when we pass through this world, Mid-Advent, we have to sit loose in the saddle. It, see, Paul says this, I think, one of the reasons that he says this is because you have to understand what Paul is saying. I don't think Paul is saying that we don't love our spouses because it's very interesting that he doesn't mention love here when he talks about obligations. You see, in Paul's day, marriage was primarily for financial security, for social honor, for the continuance of one's name and one's possessions. And Paul is saying that we don't put so much stock in those things anymore. Yes, we love because love will last. Faith, hope, and love, they will last. They will be part of the new creation. And so, yes, we love our spouse and we love our, our kids, but we don't love in the same way the idea of family, which is passing away, which will give way. See, Advent doesn't just mean a form of detachment to what is passing. It also means a reorientation to what is lasting. And that's the second thing. It's not just Advent detachment, but Paul is also calling us for an Advent reinvestment. Paul's logic is not that the world is sinking, so don't invest in it. Remember, Paul believes that a new creation has already come into existence. And so what Paul's Paul's logic is, is don't invest 
you know, Paul's logic is not, don't buy that smartphone because another one's coming out in a month. Paul's uh, logic is, don't buy that smartphone because a new one's already out and it costs the same price. So put your money there. And that one's going to last. In other words, Paul is saying, look, while uh, while the medical uh, records are changing, yes, you still have to keep up with your paper files, but don't go investing a lot of money to spruce them up. Put your money where the files are going to be, where the future is headed. Put your money and your time and your energy and your emotional investment into the digital form. Put your money in the new creation. See, the time has grown short, Paul says. It, it, he means it's been compressed, that now is the day of salvation. He's talking about a compressed opportunity. It's like when you're in game, when you watch game shows. Have you ever seen game shows and they get like two, you know, three-fourths of the way through and then they're like, all right, it's time for a speed round. And you can get all this kind of these points during the speed round. Well, Paul says now is the speed round. Now is the day of salvation. So where are you going to invest? And what this means is that it will inevitably result in life decisions that seem counterintuitive to the standards of this age. It may mean that we do things like invest more in things that get us martyred than things that get us married. That's what the early church understood. It may mean that we chose singleness over marriage precisely for that purpose because it furthers the mission of God better. Because we know that we may be able to go somewhere that we can't go if we're married. It may mean that we, that we are more concerned with being close to the front line of Jesus's mission than being close to our families and friends and the community that we grew up with. It may mean that we invest more in serving the family of God than protecting family time. It may mean, it may mean that we're more concerned with securing someone's eternity than with securing grandchildren's college tuition. And it certainly will mean that we pursue Christ-like character over comfortable careers. This is the Advent mindset that Paul is calling for. And I have to tell you, I'm not sure I like it. But I do believe that's what he's teaching with all my heart. So why should we like it? Well, here's why. Because we have to remember and believe that what we experience now is shadow that will give way to substance. That every single marriage and even the best marriages are practice. And the game is when we meet our heavenly bridegroom. We have to remember that, that the things that we are doing now, they're pointing to a greater reality, a deeper reality, a better reality a reality that we were made for and that it will not disappoint. In fact, it will over-deliver. It will over-deliver because we can't even fathom the promise and what is to come.
It's far more imaginable than anything that we could ask or think what we were made for. And so right now, we, we live with types and shadows. The, you know, this is like the Jews who, who sat there and they said, wait, you mean the mosaic dispensation is going to end? Yes. Not because it's not glorious, but because it's leading to something that is far more glorious. You mean the temple is going to end? Yes. Because God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. Yes. We're going to something better than you could ever imagine. I was uh, this, I had this uh, fellow classmate in high school and I found out that she had been living on a trailer on her property for 10 years. And the reason why they were in a trailer on their property is because, and they had this big property, they were building like a 10,000 square foot house on the property. And one day she goes off to camp and she comes home and the trailer's gone. And that big house that they had been building for like 10 years was ready for them to enter. I'm sure that there were things that she developed, sentimental attachments to that trailer over those 10 years and during that time. But the trailer was always meant to give way to something greater. The fundamental structures of this world are always meant to give way to something that is greater. God's new creation. So how do we develop? How do we develop this mentality? Well, I'm just going to give you one suggestion that was given to me by my daughter this week. And she gives me permission to share this. We were reading for Advent and we were reading 2 Peter 3, all about the coming day of the Lord and how he will come like a thief in the night. And we're talking about it and she said, you know, sometimes when I'm really sad, I just look out on the horizon and I picture that he could come back at any moment. And then she said, and sometimes when I'm really happy, I just look out on the horizon and I picture that he could come back at any moment. The sad things of this world, what Paul calls the present distress, the tears will be wiped away and they will give way to something greater. But even the happy things of this world will give way. Our best marriages will give way to the bridegroom calling his bride and saying, behold, I am here ready for you. The best meals of this life will give way to the marriage supper of the lamb. And the greatest celebrations and victories and birthday parties that we will ever know will give way. They will give way to that joyful celebration of the lamb who was slain, who conquered death and hell and sin and all of it. 
So set your eyes on that and invest in the kingdom. It's worth it. Amen.